Chapter 6 of Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H. C. Adams. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA. Perils in the Transvaal and Zululand by H. C. Adams. Chapter 6. About a week had elapsed. George and Reggie were standing on the deck of the government steamer Wasp, leaning over the bulwarks and contemplating the appearance of the harbor of Port Natal, which lay immediately in front of them, with the town of Durban in the middle distance and the Natal country in the background. The ship could proceed no farther. The bar across the harbor mouth, on which seething masses of foam were breaking, presented an insuperable obstacle. How are we to ever get in, George? asked Reggie. I suppose ships do get in somehow. Indeed, it is plain they do, for there is a lot of them lying off the quays yonder. But how they surmounted that bar, it is beyond me to imagine. I should think even the Yankee captain, who declared he could run his ship anywhere where there had been a heavy dew, would be puzzled here. I don't suppose Captain Deeds will take his ship in, answered George. He has only to deliver and take back dispatches to Cape Town, and these can be brought to him out here. "'What, in a boat, I suppose?' suggested Margetts. "'And that is the way we shall go in, then? "'Well, every man knows his own business best, "'but I should have thought there was a very comfortable chance "'of any boat being swamped. "'Wait, and you'll see, Reggie. "'Captain Deeds told me we should be safe ashore before twelve o'clock.' "'Did he tell you anything about what is going on at Mossel Bay?' asked Margetts. "'I know he has had letters from thence. "'I saw them brought aboard half an hour ago.' "'Yes, a good deal.' I am sorry to say Rolf is dead. That is the fifth of our party that was killed. Walters and three of the sailors were dead before we sailed, you know. I am sorry for Rolf. How are McCarthy and the captain and Whitaker? They are doing well. The captain's was only a slight cut across the hand. He was much more hurt by Bostock's and Van Rijk's escape than by that wound. I don't wonder. It is certainly a pity they were not run up the yard-arm, as half a dozen others may be, who were less guilty than they were. I can't think how they managed to get off. Well, I can understand it. Van Ryk and I were having a desperate tussle, and we had been driven close to the door of the shed. When I heard the gun from the wasp, our encounter was broken off, and I thought nothing more of my antagonist for the next ten minutes. As for Bostock, who was, I noticed, a first-rate swordsman— he had disarmed Vander Hayden and would, I dare say, have run him through if the cannon hadn't been fired at that moment. I judge both he and Van Ryk, who had their wits well about them, made off as fast as they could to the place where the gig had been left when Moritz and I landed from her. Aye, just at the farthest point behind the ridge, I remember, said Margetts. She was almost out of sight. Exactly. Well, they fell in with Sullivan and one or two other fellows, got aboard and rowed straight off for land. I dare say they reached it before their absence was discovered. Very likely. What do you think they will do, then? Most likely land on some solitary spot, scuttle their boat, and make their way into the interior. They have their carbines, and will have no difficulty in providing themselves with food. Perhaps they will make their way to the diamond fields, and there change their names, and make a pot of money, or perhaps they'll take to hunting or farming, and you'll meet them some years hence, driving bullock wagons and taking flocks of sheep to the market, thriving men and respectable, at least according to their ideas of respectability. Or perhaps, once more, they'll come across a band of criminals who have escaped from prison and go about robbing and murdering travelers. Nothing more likely, I should say. And what will become of the others? 
Well, as you suggested, half a dozen or so are safe to be hanged. Shirley and Anderson, for example, who were among the leaders, though not the main movers of the outbreak. As for the others, the captain is mercifully disposed. You see, the whole thing, as has been proved now, was got up by those three villains, Bostock, Van Ryck, and Sherwin, after the ship had left Cape Town. They persuaded the new men, Shirley and Sullivan, among them, to enlist. Only three or four in the first instance were told about Whitaker's money. They expected to find that in his cabin, and they would then have launched one of the boats and gone off, leaving us on the reef. When they learned, as they did from Anderson, that it had been locked up in the captain's cabin, they told half a dozen more about the money, and persuaded them to join in the attack on the officers and passengers. Then they induced the rest of the crew to believe that their only hope of escaping hanging lay in silencing the captain and his men, and getting away from the reef. The men have been the victims of several clever scoundrels, and I hope the law won't be put in force too severely against them. An hour or two afterwards, the bar having become practicable, the steam tug arrived which was to convey such of the party as desired it to the shore. But the surf dashing over the bar was still so formidable that it was judged necessary to secure the passengers against damage, after the very curious fashion resorted to on such occasions. They were sent down below in what would have been total darkness if it had not been for the glimmering light of a lantern. Then the hatches were covered over, and the passage accomplished, with an amount of shaking and rolling which was considerably worse than a stiff gale at sea. As Reggie afterwards described it, it was like as though they had been a lot of marbles thrown into a bag, and then shaken up. Happily, however, it did not last very long and they were presently safely landed on the quay and free to examine the prospect before them. Land is said always to look attractive in the eyes of those who have just accomplished a long sea voyage, but the scene which George and his companions beheld when they emerged from the cabin of the steam tug did not need this consideration to enhance its beauties. It was indeed a lovely sight which met their eyes. The streets of the town were spacious and built at right angles to one another, most of them of dark stone, which is said to harden by exposure to the air, but some of them of brick or wattle covered with plaster, many of them having deep verandas with rows of trees in front. Along the quays, which exhibited a busy scene of cargoes in the course of landing or shipping, a mass of vessels bearing the flags of all nations were lying, and on either side of the town rich forests bordered the whole coast. A little inland were seen pastures and plantations of sugar-cane. The monotonous appearance which this kind of landscape usually presents was varied by high hills and valleys here and there intervening. The wonderful blue of both sky and sea, which only those who have beheld it can realize to themselves, formed a glorious background to the picture. George and Margetts, accompanied by the other passengers, made their way to a hotel in one corner of the principal street, and partook of a luxurious repast which, to be duly appreciated, ought to be eaten by persons who had just landed after many weeks at sea. This over, they had next to obtain a conveyance to Umbelosa, and for help in providing this they applied to Meinherr Mortz, who had always been friendly, and more especially since the memorable day of the battle on the reef. I will help you as well as I can, he said. I wish I could ask you to join our party, which will pass Umbelosa on our way to Vanderheid's place, Bushman's Drift. Heinrich, his sister, and myself mean to ride, and the luggage will be conveyed in his bullock wagon, which is one of the best in Natal. But it would be no use for me to propose that. None at all, assented George dryly. Well, I don't defend him, 
he might and ought to be more courteous to you but you mustn't be too hard on him he has his good qualities he is brave and honourable and high-minded and capable of very warm and strong affection he is very fond of his sister and there is a lady lisa van cortland his cousin to whom he is almost romantically attached and whom he is soon to marry as for you it is not you he dislikes but your country and that feeling i am afraid is not peculiar to him a great many of our people believe that they have been hardly used by the english you see the whole country once belonged to us was our undisputed possession for more than a century we had done nothing to forfeit it so we feel because we had nothing to do with the quarrels of the governments in europe which were the only grounds on which it was taken from us then when we couldn't live under english rule and left the cape to settle elsewhere giving up the homes to which we were so long used in order that we might live undisturbed the english followed us to natal and we were again obliged to move elsewhere and now since this annexation many of us fear that we shall not be left alone even in the transvaal and may be obliged to break up our homes for the third time to go to some new country where even then we may not be secure from interference heinrich is one of those who feel it keenly and he's apt to show his feelings rather too plainly no doubt of that said george smiling however i am disposed to make all possible allowance for him under the circumstances you have mentioned which are i ought to add but very imperfectly known to me i suppose as is generally the case there are two versions of the story probably there are said mr mortz returning his smile and perhaps it is too much to expect that you should credit my version however whatever may come of it i hope you and i will remain friends i could never forget the service you have rendered me and indeed ankin also for she tells me that she believes she is indebted to you for saving her life on the night of the attack i don't know how that may be said george i did my best to protect her certainly but as you and her brother were not so close at hand as i was to defend her i do not know how i could possibly have done less i hope we shall be allowed to take leave of her she will wish that too said moritz but i am afraid her brother will not permit it she has indeed charged me to give her adieu together with her regrets that she cannot speak them in person but now you want my assistance in getting you to your destination your best course i think will be to make the acquaintance of a natal farmer named balin who i have learned means to set out in a few days for horner's crawl and will therefore pass very near if he does not stop at umbelosa he is a thriving man and knows the country well he is neither wholly english nor dutch his father having been an englishman and his grandfather a hollander but his sympathies are mainly english i will give you a letter to him i would go with you to his son's house haklutz kloof where he now is but time will not allow it as van der hayden sets out in a few hours george thanked him and they cordially shook hands and parted the two friends then walked out of haklutz kloof and delivered moritz's letter which at once secured a hearty welcome from the old man he was a fine specimen of a colonial farmer standing more than six feet high and strongly if somewhat heavily built he introduced the young men first to his wife a still comely matron of fifty and his daughter clara a handsome girl of twenty then to his sons stephen the eldest and owner of the kloof walter wilhelm and ernest they were all stout and sturdily built young men though hardly equalling their father's height or breadth of shoulder 
He readily agreed to convey the Englishmen and their baggage to Umbelosa, naming a very reasonable sum as their passage money. He also invited them to take up their quarters at his farmhouse until the day of his departure came, an offer which the two lads were thankful to accept. George then went out to look at the wagons in which the journey was to be made, each of which, he found, would be drawn by no less than sixteen oxen. They were in construction not unlike an English wagon, only a good deal stronger and more solid. They were arranged not only for the conveyance of goods, but for the accommodation of travelers. At one end there were seats arranged on either side, and from the roof hammocks might be suspended, in which the females of the party might sleep, the men usually making their beds either under the wagons or at the farther end. Two entire days were consumed in loading them. As George and Reggie were not to go the whole distance, their boxes were put in last, and then one day more was passed in careful examination of the cattle, to make sure they were all in sound condition. On the morning of the fourth day, however, they set out, the party consisting of the farmer, his wife and daughter, and his three sons, three native servants, a boy, and two young Englishmen. The first thing was to harness, or, as it is termed in that country, to inspan the cattle. This is a curious process for a stranger to witness. The oxen, which in a well-trained team are fully as well experienced in the operation of their masters, are driven close up to the wheel of the wagon, with their heads toward it. Then the wagon driver calls each ox by its name, which it knows as well as any English dog knows his, and the animal bends forward to allow the yoke to be put upon its neck. Then they are arranged in a double line, eight couple, one behind the other, a kaffir lad, called the four-looper, leading the way. He brandishes in his hand a huge whip of camel's leopard's hide, which he delivers with terrific effect on the shoulders or back of the unhappy animals, generally towards the close of the journey, when the team are becoming weary, or, at all events, lazy. The farmer and one of his sons accompanied the wagon on horseback, while the rest of the party walked by the side or took a few hours' siesta in the wagons. Farmer Balin proposed to George to ride the first part of the journey in his and his son's company, and the latter gladly accepted the offer. He was greatly struck with the beauty of the scenery in the neighborhood of Durban. The journey for the first two days lay over Cowie's Hill, which rises to a considerable height, affording a wide prospect of the seacoast with its rich line of woods, while inland, the country for a considerable distance presents a succession of elevated ridges extending as far as the Umkamanzi River. The road itself was in the highest degree picturesque. It was November, the May of the Southern Hemisphere. Every now and then the wagons would enter upon a thick undergrowth of shrubs, plowing their way, as it were, through an inland sea, the fragrance and beauty of shrubs far exceeding anything that an English landscape presents. When a few miles had been accomplished, the oxen were outspanned and allowed to graze, while the men took their midday meal, and afterwards smoked their pipes under the shelter of some fragrant shrubs. Just as they reached the first halting place, George discerned in the distance some singular-looking circular erections, which, the farmer informed him, were a native village, and finding that George was anxious to see it, offered to ride up and make an examination of it. The offer was gladly accepted, and after a short canter the crawl was reached. It was situated on one of the slopes above a rapid stream, and was built after the design usual among the kaffirs. There were two circular enclosures, one inside the other, the whole being protected by a strong palisade. The outer circle is for the kaffirs themselves, the inner one for the cattle. As these latter constitute the wealth of the villagers, they are careful to secure them against theft or violence, and by this arrangement they could only be seized after all the resistance the men could offer had been overcome. Each hut is circular in shape, 
and consists of a framework constructed of long poles driven into the ground and bent towards the top, so as to meet at one point in the center. Similar poles are laid horizontally at intervals one above another, and secured to the uprights by strips of fiber, so that the whole structure resembles a huge circular crate. The portion which forms the roof is covered with grass pegged down and secured to the poles, something after the way in which ricks are thatched in England. The floor usually consists of clay, when it can be found in the neighborhood, leveled and beaten hard. It is sometimes even polished by being rubbed over with a flat stone. There is a circular elevation in the center of the hut similarly formed, which serves as a fireplace, but there is nothing resembling a chimney. The smoke escaping, as used to be in the case in the dwellings of the ancient Britons, through the framework above. There is generally a door formed of wattle work, which can be closed in inclement weather, and sometimes a kind of screen of similar material can be placed to windward of the fire when the weather is unusually severe. George was struck with the fine proportions and intelligent faces of the men, many of them exhibiting muscular stalwart frames and expressive features which a Greek sculptor might not have disdained to copy. The women, though some of them were not ungraceful in figure, were not nearly equal, either in personal beauty or intelligence, to their male companions. Their features were, indeed, altogether too flat to satisfy the European idea of beauty, a fault which was not observable among the men. On George's remarking this disparity of the sexes to the farmer, he answered it was no doubt caused by the severe and incessant labor imposed upon the women, for which nature had not designed them. They are required, said he, to perform the entire manual labor of the crawl, all the digging, planting, and reaping, which in other lands is performed by the men, while the men themselves sit at home engaged in sowing their carosses, in which they display great dexterity, and by which they realize considerable sums. There is, however, no lack of manhood among them. Their bravery in the chase and in war is not inferior to that of civilized nations. If ever they should learn from us how to fight, said old Balin to George, and possess themselves of the Gatling gun and Martini rifle, it would be a bad day for the whites. They outnumber us ten to one, and are as fearless and resolute as any European race. But if they are converted to Christianity, said George, they would hardly rise against their benefactors, would they? Aye, said the old farmer. So many think but to my mind that is a rotten reed to lean on. The nations of Europe have been Christianized many centuries ago, but that does not prevent their going to war with one another when they think themselves wronged, or even when they imagine some advantage is to be gained. How mistaken the idea is was to be seen in Sandalee's war only a little time ago. Some of the chiefs and some of their men too, who had been baptized in their infancy and had lived as Christians all their lives, nevertheless took part with their heathen countrymen in the struggle with the English. Several of the chiefs, Duquana among others, who had been a very zealous proselyte, hesitated for some time as to what course they should pursue, and did not renounce their Christianity. But they took part with Sandalee nevertheless, and if they could have succeeded in exterminating the whites and regaining possession of southern Africa would not have hesitated to do so. That is a very serious consideration, said George. You say they are greatly more numerous than the whites, do you not? 
There is no proportion between the two, said the farmer. Our European population in Natal, English, Dutch, German, and all others, is considerably under 20,000. The Kaffirs number not less than 350,000, and, what is more serious still, the Zulu kingdom, which immediately adjoins ours, is governed by a native king, the most powerful that has ever reigned in South Africa. His army alone contains four times as many men as our whole white population, and every man among them is a trained warrior, as fearless of wounds and death as any man in your English regiments. How is it that they do not attack you? asked George. There are several reasons, answered Balin. In the first place, the native races are not at unity among themselves. They hate one another even more bitterly than they hate the white man, and thus the English are enabled to array one tribe against another. The Basutos and the Fingos will help you to put down the Gekas and the Gaelkas, and these, when reduced to obedience, would very possibly aid you against the Zulus, if you were indeed going to war with them. That is one reason. Another is that, so far, whenever your English troops have come into collision with the natives, they have always had the better of them, and there is a very general idea that the English cannot be conquered. If any one race should ever succeed in any campaign against your troops, the consequences would be very grave indeed. Indeed, I believe that the general opinion entertained respecting the Zulu king and his irresistible military power has already done enormous mischief, and he will have to be put down before English supremacy in South Africa can be effectually secured. But here we are back again, and it is time to resume our journey. About nightfall they reached their halting place, a small village about ten miles distant from Durban, where they obtained a supply of fresh milk and mealies, resuming their journey on the following day. For several hours they proceeded without any unusual occurrence, but about noon Matamo, as the principal driver was called, came up to Mr. Balin and exchanged a few words with him pointing in the direction of a small knoll, which lay at a distance of a few hundred yards. The farmer, who had been on the point of dismounting, put his horse in motion and rode in company with the driver to the spot indicated. He returned in a few minutes and ordered the cattle to be outspanned and carefully secured inside a small thicket which lay close at hand. "'Have you ever seen one of our South African storms?' he asked George, when he had finished these preparations. "'No,' was the answer. But surely you cannot apprehend a storm now, Mr. Balin. It is one of the most calm and beautiful days I ever remember to have witnessed. Aye, I dare say you think so, returned the farmer. But nevertheless, we are going to have it sharp and strong, as the saying is, and that within a quarter of an hour. The suddenness with which storms come on and pass away again is one of the peculiar features of southern Africa. You had better get inside the wagon, and that without loss of time. The women have been wise enough to take shelter already. While the farmer was speaking, he had been engaged in carefully securing his horse by a strong rein, and then, climbing up after Reggie and George into the wagon, drew down and fastened the curtain in front. While this conversation was going on, the air had perceptibly darkened, and there came a rush of cold wind from the north, the precursor, apparently, of the hurricane. Then the storm broke out with a suddenness and violence which fairly took George's breath away. The wind swept down with such force that, but for the shelter of the trees, neither man nor horse could have stood against it. The air grew so dark that they could hardly discern each other's faces, and the hail, or rather the blocks of ice, poured down from the skies, beating against the covering of the cart with such violence that George expected every moment to see it driven in. 
Presently the hail ceased, and a deluge of rain followed. The men had been careful to place the wagon on a piece of ground which was slightly raised above the rest, but for this the water would have risen almost to the level of the floor of the wagon, and the ground on both sides of them was soon converted into a small river which poured along with the fury of a mountain torrent, sweeping away shrubs and small trees, and even large stones, as though they had been so many straws. It was two hours good before the storm was over. Then the clouds dispersed. The sun came out again, and no other trace of the fury of the elements was left but what was supplied by the uprooted shrubs and the streams of water which continued to pour along with unabated force. We shan't be able to proceed any farther today, remarked the farmer. The ground will be too soft to travel upon for ten or twelve hours, even under this hot sun. We must make ourselves as comfortable as we can for the night. The necessary arrangements were accordingly made. The horses were hobbled and turned out to graze. A fire was lighted, at which supper was cooked, and after the meal the males of the party sat down to smoke their pipes by it, for the night air after the rain was chilly. Mrs. Balin and Clara retired to rest in their wagon. "'I should like to hear the history of your life in South Africa,' said George, as he threw another log on the fire. "'I think you said you came into these parts when you were quite a lad, and that, I judge, cannot be less than fifty years ago. You must remember a great many changes, and probably have gone through some strange adventures. If you don't feel disposed for sleep just yet, I wish you would give us the benefit of your experiences. Reggie and I would be greatly interested to hear them.' "'Father won't object to that,' said Wilhelm with a smile. "'Nothing pleases him better than to tell us stories about his young days.' "'And they're worth hearing, too,' added Ernest. "'I suppose I've heard most of them more than once, but I always like to hear them again. "'I only wish Clairchen were with us. She enjoys them even more than I do.'" End of chapter 6 Recording by Mark Friend, Arlington, Virginia, USA